This morning we're going to look at uh, the Lord's table. Last week we looked at at uh, water baptism, believers baptism, and a lot of uh, Christian denominations use the term sacrament to describe these two uh, ordinances. And sacrament means simply this: that that the act in itself imparts grace. In other words, if you just say a prayer, if you just do certain activity, God's grace is imparted to you. Well, the Bible doesn't teach it that way. Um, The Lord's table and baptism is a command by the Lord, which is a result of grace, which is really a relief. Because you don't have to do a work, and you don't have to be a special person. You don't have to be a, a religious person to receive the grace of the Lord. You just have to have a humble and and a heart that longs after Christ, and he freely gives us his grace. And after we receive his grace, our response to that is to follow after Christ and and to love him with all of our heart and to love people. And as we do that, he freely showers his grace uh, upon our hearts and, and upon our lives. And so we looked at the first ordinance last week. We're going to celebrate that next Sunday, which is water baptism. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is just to quickly go through kind of a PowerPoint uh, on, on just the basics of the Lord's table. Um, and then I'm going to end up doing a verse-by-verse out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and referencing Galatians chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 2. So if you want to find your way, go to the front of the Bible. You want to find out where 1 Corinthians is, find the page number, go to chapter 11. And if you find 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you're good to go. If you want to expand it a little bit and find where Galatians is, you can do that because we'll make reference to a couple verses there. But um, let's pray, and and then we'll, we'll discuss and let the Lord encourage us in as we do a study uh, on the Lord's table this morning. So Father, we thank you for uh, the work that you're doing through ordinary people, uh, for the Ukrainian people, and we pray uh, for provision and blessing upon them. And we pray for us this morning, Lord, as we study your word and step into the truth about the Lord's table, that, Lord, it it would just produce a, a greater desire Uh, for Jesus in our life, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we'll work through uh, this little PowerPoint. It's online. You can can download it. You can look at it uh, during the week. And the first thing we want to do is make a doctrinal statement. And the doctrinal statement that's embraced by Calvary Chapel is embraced by uh, I'd say all evangelical churches, and, and, and that statement would read, the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act, okay? And that's important, and we'll unpackage that as we go through the teaching this morning. It's a symbolic act of obedience, and that's where the term ordinance comes from. It's a command, and we're responding to in, it in obedience, whereby members of the church, those that are born again, partake of the bread and the fruit of the vine, and we memorialize or we remember uh, the death and the burial and the resurrection and the second coming of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. And so when we flow out of that doctrinal statement, we 
in our culture, there's three primary ways that people kind of, uh, our denominations, put that into praxis when it comes to the presence of, of Jesus Christ. And some of you, many of us, have come out of those type of traditions, and one of them is the Roman tradition of transubstantiation, which simply means that when the priest raises up the cup and the host, that those elements actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. How many come out of that, that uh, uh, yeah, maybe, well, not very many at the 11. Well, that's, that's interesting. So, our, our, no, not 11 at the 10, yeah. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, the second one is Constance. Be it, con, con, someone say it for me. I'm struggling with my voice. Consubstantiation, which is a Lutheran view, uh, which means that the presence of Jesus is mingled amongst the element. And, um, and then the third one is the, is the one that, that we would embrace in most evangelical churches would, that, that it's a remembrance. So that as we, as we remember the Lord, as we're gathered in worship, which we'll look at, in 1 Corinthians 11, as we worship the Lord, the Holy Spirit is present, and he brings the presence of Jesus uh, into our midst. Now, in, in, in practical ways, I could certainly rail against transubstantiation and consubstantiation. I could certainly do that. But in practical ways, I, I just simply recognize this, that it's the Lord's table. It, it doesn't belong to us. Calvary chapels do not have ownership of the Lord's table. Those other denominations that practice these other two things or believe or teach these other two things, they just need to be reminded what they're doing belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to them. And so when I attend and participate in these other churches, I, I, I tend to, to remind myself that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and the Lord's table is, is an invitation from Jesus himself for me to do what? Remember him. And so, you know, in practical ways, um, you know, I, I tend, and I can rail against it. I'm pretty effective at railing against it, but it really doesn't produce anything. It doesn't really produce any good fruit. And so my, pastorally, my encouragement to people is if you find yourself in those situations, then recognize this simple truth that it's, it's the Lord's table and it doesn't belong to denomination and you should be led by your conscience and the Holy Spirit whether you should participate or not. Does that sound okay? Well, it'll sound okay to 99% of you, and that 1% will talk to me afterwards. How's that? <laughs> so uh, the origin of, thank you very much, good job. The origin of the Lord's Supper stems out of a historical um, event where the Lord, uh, before the night before he was betrayed, he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And, and he took bread and he broke it and he took the cup and he said to his disciples, do this in, in remembrance of me. And so the name uh, is used. Uh, the, there's four different approaches to the, to the name. Uh, it's called the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. Eucharist means, can anybody help me? Eucharist means what? Thanksgiving. And communion is a very familiar name to us. We use it time and time again, it's called koinonia, and that means what? Fellowship, yeah. It means having, sharing common life with Jesus Christ. And so, 
depending upon your denomination or your church, you know, they all prefer a different name. And, and sometimes when you hear the Eucharist, it, it's, it's kind of rather intimidating. But all it means in the Greek, and, and it's in your notes there, all it simply means is we're, gonna give, we're giving thanks to the Lord as Jesus told us to. To, to remember him as he instituted uh, the Lord's Supper. And, and, and you know my preference. My preference is I always call it what? The Lord's Table. And so, you know, it's just the, the, whatever the person's preference is, but they're all synonymous. So the purpose, when we look at the purpose of the Lord's Table, um, and it, it is a remembrance, and the bread points to Christ's body and the wine, his blood shed on the cross, and we proclaim his death and his second coming. So we remember what Christ has done for us, right? Past and present, and we look forward to that second coming when the trump shall sound and the dead in Christ will be raised and those that are remain will be caught up to meet him in the air. That's going to be quite an event, isn't it? We, we like to see that sooner rather than later, but, but to use the King James language, we're tarrying un until, until he comes. Um, administration and recipients is an important aspect, and, and we're about to get into our verse by verse, so if I'm boring you to death, uh, the, there's hope. It's coming. Uh, the administration and recipients, is, it's really part of public worship. It's a public act of worship by the gathered church. Um, it requires an examination it's about born-again believers who discern the work of Christ, born-again believers who are not walking in unrepented sin. And, and as a footnote, let me say this, that early church history, the Didache and um, Justin Martyr in his first apology, um, the early church uh, pra had, a, had a rule of order that you couldn't receive the Lord's table uh, unless you were what? Unless you were baptized. And I think that's a good insight when we're discipling our children, uh, that when our children begin to grow up, they come to church and they say, well, why can't I, or what is this? And, and you explain to them, well, that's for people that have given their heart to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's a way we, we celebrate and remember what Jesus has done for us. And most kids, like at six, seven years old, six, seven years of age will go, what? Oh, that's nice. But when they get to eight, nine, ten, they're going to say, oh, that's nice, but why can't I do it? And it's at that place where we have an opportunity into the young person's heart to be able to speak to them and begin to disciple them into the place where, where as their awareness of sin comes and their awareness of who they are before the Lord comes, that, that we can disciple them into, well, if you believe in Jesus Christ in your heart and you understand what sin is and repentance is, then as a mom and dad, let's, let's pray together and let's let Jesus come into your heart and forgive you of all your sins because God has no grandchildren. You, he relates to every one of us as a son and daughter. And we use that opportunity and we lead our young people to Christ. After we lead them to Christ, and before we allow them to share the Lord's table, we say to them what? Well, if, you, if you've accepted Jesus Christ in your heart, and 
that has happened and you believe it as, as mom and dad, you say to the, your young person, well, the next step is what? The, ne- the next step is to be baptized as a, as a believer in Jesus Christ. And the statement is, to the world, I belong to Jesus Christ. And then you get to disciple into them what the Lord's table means. And so there's a natural progression there that I encourage parents to really think about. Uh, the question often begs, you know, then what is the age of a child? When, when should that happen? Well, I can tell you this. I've baptized some, some eight-year-olds that they're more fervent than some 30-year members of the church. They share their faith, and they're vibrant in the Lord. But for the most part, most young people come of to that place somewhere around 11 or 12 or 13 years old where they can understand it. Now, it's not a hard and fast rule because of why. Because I can't give you a chapter and verse for it. All I can say is that the early church had a witness that conversion should precede receiving in the Lord's table. And conversion's first, say, expression publicly is baptism. And so the gospel witness is conversion as a, as a, as a full-fledged, you know, cognitive person, conversion followed by baptism, followed by the celebration of the Lord's table. So if you can kind of get a grid for that, you begin to understand how you can cooperate with the Holy Spirit in, in whatever developmental stage that your, that your child is at. So having said that, come with me to 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll go through it uh, verse by verse, starting in verse 17. So just a footnote before we get going. Um, Corinth, um, Corinth is a church that is quite a mess. And I often have people come in and say to me, Pastor Ed, I want us to go back to way the New Testament church is. And my response to that is, God forbid. Because <laughs> they, they were quite messed up. And uh, I like to think that our church is not as messed up as the early church, but I don't want to go that far. Because this afternoon I'll get surprised. So come with me to verse 17. Paul writes this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church. So what Paul's saying to them is that you are the ecclesia. It's a Greek word that's translated as church. It means those that are called out from the world and that belong to Christ, that gather together in a particular locale for the proclamation of God's word and for the execution of the two what? Ordinances, baptism and the Lord's table. And so he's saying that they're a church, and he's, and can you imagine the Apostle Paul coming in here and said, Calvary Chapel, Chelmsford, every time you get together, you just make things worse. And so Paul calls them to account. And he, and he demonstrates that in verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And he goes this. Paul goes, I believe it. I see it. I believe it. Um, 
he says, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions. So the word for factions here is heresies. And what Paul is demonstrating is that there's no perfect church. In Corinth, there were factions, and, and there were heresies. And Paul, in the next phrase, we'll look at it, he says that, that these things, factions and heresies and divisions, help to be able to highlight what is true and what is false. Come back to the text. He says, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may, that those that are genuine among you may be recognized. And so what Paul is saying here is that in Corinth and in churches in general, there's problems, but there has to be discernment. And what Paul is going to model is the remedy for those factions and divisions. And the remedy that Paul is going to model for us is the proclamation and the teaching of the Word of God. And so last week we mentioned a heresy that's sweeping through, and some of our people have been exposed to it, a thing called the Last Reformation. And so instead of railing against it, in one of the teachings of the Last Reformation is that in order to be saved, you must be baptized. So the remedy that we used was to debunk that false teaching, false claim, by doing what? By demonstrating through the Word of God in Acts chapter 8 that you do not have to be baptized to be saved. And then one of our brothers over here made a comment that, oh, yeah, yeah, what about, yeah, and it's like the light came on. It's like, yeah, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and Jesus said to him, this day you'll be with me in paradise, right? And so the way to remedy false teaching and bad practice in divisions is not to rail against individuals, per se, even though they, from time to time, the Apostle Paul and John called them out. It's to teach good doctrine. And good doctrine results in a closer relationship with the Lord and good experiences with him. And this is what Paul does. Look at the text with me. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now, you should say right away, well, how's that possible? How's that possible? Uh, Paul, you, you weren't one of the 12. That's when we harmonize the scriptures together, right? We harmonize the scriptures. We go to Galatians chapter 1, and Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus took him away into the desert, into Arabia, for, for, for three years and instructed him in the way, instructed him in the things of the kingdom of God. And so Paul comes to them in the midst of that, in verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim 
the Lord's death until he comes. So what Jesus is instituting is ordinary means to express the grace that he wants to minister to our hearts in. And many, many times in the New Testament, people got tripped up by Jesus using ordinary elements to point to a, to a spiritual or a supernatural truth. He often used metaphors or parables to teach a principle about the kingdom. If you come with me, hold your finger there, John chapter 6, I know this is not in your notes, I mean, one of the problems in preaching is that you often don't stay to your notes, which drives some people like crazy, but that is what it is. So uh, John chapter 6, we see an illustration of this, Jesus using language that if, if discernment isn't exercised and understanding isn't exercised and harmonizing the gospel isn't taking place, you can teach the wrong thing. Verse 53, John chapter 6. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also lives because of me. Is he talking about cannibalism? No, read on. So this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died in the wilderness. And so Jesus is using that, that metaphorical speech to point not to eating and drinking of his blood and flesh in a cannibalistic way, right? It's pointing to that greater truth that when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that he becomes our life. When we walk in intimacy with Jesus, he nourishes our soul because he is what? The bread of life. And so there's this spiritual truth that Jesus is giving to the people. Now, the rest of the chapter, I could summarize it. And by pointing to one scripture, Hebrews 12, 6. The, the Lord disciplines those that he loves. And what is the Lord disciplining the people about? Well, they're not discerning. They're not discerning the body of the Lord, which is to love God and to love people around you. Look at if you would, verse 20 through 22. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What do you have in houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so the error here is is selfishness and the indifference to the poor. That when the rich people came and brought their poo-poo platters from the Chinese you know, restaurant down in Jerusalem, you know, they didn't consider that people there had nothing to eat. They didn't consider their neighbor. And so what the Lord says to them is that when you come together, you do more harm 
then you do good. And in the last part of the chapter, he says that in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. So let each person examine, the word there is prove, a parallel text that accentuates that is Psalm 51, 17. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, Hebrews 12, 6, by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Closing it up. So then, my brothers, whenever you come together and eat, wait. Parallel text, 1 John 3, 17. If you see your brother in need, what should you do? You should exercise loving God and loving your brother by providing them for what you need. And so let's summarize this by taking a look at the four, the four looks. So when we come to the Lord's table, what are we doing? Well, we're doing two things. We're, we're looking back, right? And we're remembering. We're remembering what Jesus has done for us. That's a spiritual exercise where we, where we intentionally call back to mind that he was born of a virgin. He humbled himself. He lived a sinless life. He willingly became our substitute on the cross. We, we remember what Jesus has done. And when we remember what Jesus has done, we take a look within. We examine ourselves. And I did, that, I did that exercise this week, and I would encourage you to do it in, in, a, in a minute or so before we celebrate the Lord's table. I asked myself on Thursday, I said, I said um, sometimes when I speak to myself, it's, you know, I call myself Edward. So I said, um, Edward, and that got my attention because that's what my mother called me, and that always gets my attention. Don't call me Edward. I have one mother. That's all I'll ever need in my life. So I said, Edward, can you remember what, can you remember what Jesus did for you? And, and I closed my eyes, and I said, yeah, yeah, I see, I see you, Lord. I see, I see your hands outstretched. Yeah, I, I see the stripes. Lord, I see the wound. I see the dripping of the blood. I see, Lord, that you're naked. I see, Lord, that your hands are outstretched and you're vulnerable and you're still reaching out to that thief on the cross. And you've done that for me. And then the point of transformation comes when you ask yourself, like, how does that intersect with your life? How does that apply to your life? And I, and I you know, I, I had to say to the Lord, well, Lord, I, I tend not to live my life like that. I tend to live my life like this, which is you can only come so far. I'm only going to give so much. 
I don't want to be hurt, so this works. And the point of transformation and the point of spiritual growth, and it's very hard in the flesh. That's why Galatians 2.20 says, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me the point of transformation in all of our lives, regardless of our age, is where we live a life through the cross where we minister to people out of our own brokenness and minister to people with a vulnerable and humble heart. And that changes you and brings forth an aroma of the grace of God in all of our life. There's a couple more. We look around and we look ahead. We look around and say, oh Lord, thank you for the people that have journeyed with me for decades. We did that yesterday at the men's breakfast. Appreciating our friendship that we have as men. And we look ahead. I love that the way Paul says it, he says, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, these momentary afflictions are building up for us an eternal weight of glory. And that helps us get through the difficult parts of life. And so let's take a moment as we close this morning. Would you prepare your heart by taking a look back and a look within? Maybe open one eye and look around. That may be a little scary, but but to look ahead to his coming, his second coming, and the glory that we'll walk in when we see Jesus face to face. Take a moment and prepare your hearts.